Hey, this episode is brought to you in part by Signature Doors and Windows. Now, on to the show. Is, is the design justified by itself? Mm-hmm. Or does it need to be justified in the natural environment? What makes people happy? Right. And it breaks the grid. Does it, you know, it's, it's it looks imperfect and planned. Yeah. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. Hey, good evening. Hey. Welcome to Architecting. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Yeah, so today we have Laura Marion. You know anything about Laura? I do not. Yeah. So I had seen her work start popping up on Instagram, um, some interesting stuff, uh, but then really became aware of her... Uh, Modern Denver wrote a whole article about her um, and so got to know her through that article and then wanted to hear more about this story. But she has quite the uh, creative creative background lineage. So, Is she with Flight? Yes. Yes. She's with Flight. Thank you for that. Her, her firm name is Flight Architecture. Um, but her grandfather was Charles Sink of Sink Combs Detlift, ah. now Perkins Will. And her step-grandfather was uh, Edward White, who uh, had a firm that designed the the Tropical Conservatory at the Botanic Gardens, the building. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite buildings in, in town. Um, and so she had those two, two grandfathers kind of... Uh, as, as a background and as, as growing up. Um, and then her, her mother was a well-known uh, painter and her uncle Mark Sink is, is a, a famous photographer as well. So she had quite sort of the, the lineage, but uh, it was not an automatic uh, route for her to go into architecture, <laughs> a route that included uh, literally like sailing around the world or nice. partially around the world. Um and she she definitely sort of um i think in this interview um confronts or maybe like struggles with the idea of the sort of legacy and, and lineage of of the older generation of of architects and of her grandfathers and um sort of sees her work in a way of um yeah thinking about how you can do architecture differently and and some of the the flaws of the sort of high modernist kind of 60s, 50s, 60s kind of uh, times. Mm, you got me intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she talks about um, sort of what place like love has within architecture mm. and and how you can um, approach architecture from a, from a, a sort of sense of, 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 of love or how that can be a sort of generating... Um, or guiding force within her work. Mm, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, uh, it's great conversation. Got, uh, yeah. We, we she was very open and um, um, hasn't had the firm all that long, but uh, getting work built and just it, it's it's cool again. You know, this is my kind of sort of favorite part where you have these people that are pretty young in their in their firms and and thinking about kind of commiserating that struggle of of starting a firm and and how you work through stuff so nice yeah it's fun enjoy 
Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. That was the easy thing about doing um, Zoom interviews is that you're just on and and it's recording right away and it's never like, oh, the interview starts now. And so you could kind of like ease your way into it. Okay. But now in person, when we're doing all this messing around with the mics and things like this, then it gets to the point where like, okay, get serious. Uh, now <laughs> now we have to talk talk good and uh, and begin the podcast. But, but, uh, but yeah, well, you know, thanks for having me up here to Boulder and, uh, let's see, where are we at? So we're in, in Kiln, that's what it's called, co-working space. Yes, we're at 21st in Pearl and I can actually look out and see a project I worked on some time ago. Mm-hmm. Is, a was that a good thing or is that a... It is good. It's, yeah. it's just, I'm in such a different place now and I remember the person I was when I did that and... And now this building has been totally rehabilitated and and it's a great cross-pollination of lots of entrepreneurs and a, and a good place to be in your clients. Yeah. It's, it's, that's so funny, right, of past projects and some of them you like to see all the time and some there's that one detail that you didn't get right or they didn't build right or, uh, yeah, we, we designed my in-law's house it burned down in the Black Forest fire, and there's inside there's a vaulted ceiling, and there's one moment where the vault like jogs, and I could remember designing that that little shed roof that comes in and being like, I don't know how that meets up. Uh, the contractor will figure that out. He'll he'll want to make sure those meet up, and now it just uh, laughs at me every time I'm in there. I know that feeling, but it's such a good feeling to do projects for your neighbors and family and friends. <laughs> yeah. but that is the hard part that. You know, I die a little bit inside sometimes when I see something that was a choice that I made. Driving, I'll take a different route, or you know, limitations of the project and the time and owner's preferences led to certain decisions. Yeah, most of the time Photoshop can take care of that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So we're here here at co-working your co-working spot in like the the nicest podcast studio we've had on the podcast yet. Uh, very nice space and equipment that we we figured out how to use barely. Um, so how long you, how long you've been here in this space? I've been at Kiln for about a year and a half, and already I've made contacts from here. Another architect that I've teamed up with and collaborations. So I think it's working away from too. Huh? What other architects? Megan Rux. Megan Rux. Okay. I've connected with. And um, also structural engineers, just different folks doing different nice. things. Sometimes on their own, and they're just working remotely for a for a New York firm or something like that. And chat over the fizzy water stand. It's very Boulder. <laughs> it's a very nice fizzy water stand. Yeah. Uh, cool. Let's see. Well, 
I could easily get into this interview, but let's let's make you do the hard question of of who are you? What what would the back of your book, if you wrote a book, what would the back say about you in two sentences? Uh, well, I hope it says that I'm I'm a soul centered human factors architect, mm. and that I go forth in faith, in life, and in work that love wins, and if we if our work is rooted in love, for self-love, for our natural environment, for the community, for people around us, that it works and it's beautiful and it's sustainable. Yeah, I love, you know, I love that answer. Um, so how did, what was the journey you took to, to get to that place and that very well-crafted answer? Where where did you grow up? Where are you from? I'm from Denver. I was born in Denver. I I grew up there. I'm a Coloradoan through and through. Oh, this is such a journey. So how did I get to that answer? We'll probably talk a little bit more about my background and school and things like that. But I think I turned 40 this year. And looking back, I've, I've cared a lot about what my peers thought about my work. Mm. And I now have been doing this for a while and I have, you know, big body work with a, a start to a body of work and it's, it's going fine and it's my own style. And the things that are most successful are when I just stopped worrying about what other people mm. thought of my work. <laughs> yeah. And when it just came from something that, I really loved or something the owner really loved and that became the fulcrum of everything is so successful and there's so much more ease and flow when you find that thing yeah that idea of stop worrying what people think that's a that's a battle that's oh a gosh, huge yes. battle well uh, i haven't stopped worrying but i would like to more and more and I think I'm growing into that yeah and then I, I had the opportunity to have coffee with David Triba mm. whose career I admire so much and this idea was starting to form in my head about like oh when when what we do is based on love it really works but it hadn't really gelled and then he said he said it so much more succinctly. Mm. It just love. Like, what do you love? Do that. Build your career around love. And that really resonated with me. And it was so well timed. I was able to have that conversation. Mm. And it came from somebody who does a heck of a lot more architecture and is really famous. That gave me the confidence to drill into that more. Yeah. And develop, you know, a philosophy around what does what does design rooted in love look like? When was that? When, when did you have the conversation or that kind of epiphany? About a year and a half ago. Okay. Huh. So you grew up in Denver, surrounded by art and architecture, right? Like, who's your family? <laughs> right. So my mom's dad, um, Chuck Sinks, my grandfather, was an architect of some note in his day, and he 
came, um, he went to UPenn and did his master's at Harvard. So passionate about architecture and was surrounded by notable architects of the international style right in the heyday of modernism. And he worked for IMP, who was surprisingly was his classmate actually, but just from the stories I've heard, I never had occasion to meet IMP. My mom did, but he's so tremendous. And my grandfather followed him to work on Second Work Plaza in downtown Denver, which sadly I think the best building of that piece is gone now. And I think that's the uh, the kind of pavilion type mm-hmm. building. Yeah, right. That I think some would say is the predecessor to the Louvre. Anyway, yeah. so my grandfather practiced. He had his own firm, Seacombs Douglas, and then my my grandmother they got divorced. My grandmother and Chuck Sink, and she remarried another architect, <laughs> Edward White. <laughs> she had a type. Yeah, <laughs> she totally had a type. These international style architects, <laughs> and she herself. Um, this is my mom's mom. Was an artist, tremendously talented. Yeah, and. Born, born with talent, but also it was just part of her. When she died not too long ago, um, a little over two years ago, and mm-hmm. I saw her books and journals and things I hadn't really seen before because they're kind of her personal things. She filled journals with the philosophy behind her art and where it came from, and so that was really interesting to see her a little glimpse of her life and times. Yeah, like really stunning, like abstract art, right? Um, and what was her name? Anne Seek White. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Ed White, Ed too, um, he had an incredible career. He was really inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright, the library on South Broadway was his, and I think most notably, the beautiful glass pavilion at the Botanic Gardens. Yeah, it's one of my favorite buildings in town. Yeah, it's one of mine too. It, right? It's really stood the test of time. Yeah, and while I know it's it's sort of part of its tradition in international modernism, maybe to me it has it's so spirited. Yeah, and that's that's probably a piece of architecture um, from that generation that 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 inspires me. So, I mean, yeah, so you grew up in Denver, they were in Denver, you were always around them and the firms and architecture. Was that always like a kind of thing in your life or what was it? You, it was like water. You just didn't quite notice it. Cause it was always around. I wonder, maybe I don't have perspective on that, but our careers seized each other because I'm a generation away. Oh, right. So they... I, I I have memories of walking through their offices a little bit, mm. but I didn't come to architecture until later. I mm. didn't. I went to grad school when I was 23, my undergraduate degrees in something else. I didn't go through my whole life in the time where I would have had the most time with my grandparents, thinking I was going to be an architect someday. That's just sort of, I grew into that later. Mm. And... There are so many questions I wish I could ask them now. And I, I am in some ways sorry that, that we missed each other. And um, I, I'm in conversation with them now mm-hmm. because I, 
I don't see myself as following in the footsteps right. or necessarily part of the same tradition. Yeah. I think, I feel it's imperative to, to change the narrative. Uh-huh. And they were really steeped in um, the way of doing things in their time. I and and, and my many of my peers in architecture now are questioning. Yeah. What specific thing, things do you see about about your your grandfathers uh, that you're you're fighting against? You know what what did they set up that that you're you're pushing it back against now? Yeah. Well, as tactfully as possible. I mean, I don't want to say anything negative about the deceased or something. Here's what I am experimenting with, or what I'm calling into question, what I'm trying to figure out is. Can I start with a little anecdote, actually? Yeah, please. Okay. I like anecdotes. So my first job in an architecture office was in 08, when uh. it was really hard to get a job in an architecture office, and I applied everywhere in Denver. I had no experience, like pretty minimal skills, because I had only just started grad school and couldn't get a job for obviously. And um, Dick Holmes, my grandfather's, partner who was still working at that time graciously extended me the opportunity <laughs> to be an intern uh, so that sort of feels like the only the coattails moment that I've had in my career in terms of having an opportunity when I you know like in, in 08 you, you had to take any advantage <laughs> you could like yeah that's about where it was and at that time they were remodeling the Sharks Arena I'm actually not sure what it's called in San Jose mm. The Cinco Deflestas, huge, at that time, huge, large band structures, sports stadiums, athletic facilities. And my grandfather Chuck's last project that he he was designing for was the Sharks Stadium in San Jose, California. And he was very proud. He was, he was very proud of that. And of course, you know, a stadium like that, you work on for years and years. And the own the new owners of the stadium had come back to the same firm to ask them to do a remodel. And I was a little part of the remodel. So it was interesting for me to see what was working and what didn't. Mm. And I had opportunity to open up an old file. There was a CAD file for the whole thing, even though I think everything you should revealed was by hand. Mm. It was the early nineties. But somebody had tried to get it going in CAD. Um so <laughs> I I opened up this file and and it had this beautiful radial grid mm-hmm. and it brought to mind things that Chuck had talked to me about. He had such rigor in his style and his approach and he was just driven by like an austere modernism mm-hmm. and adhering to the rules. For the design, and it was, it was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful plan mm. in plan. Yeah, but it didn't respond to the natural environment. They called it Shark Alley. This <laughs> part of the stadium that got no sun, and so people didn't go there. They didn't buy concessions. It wasn't a nice place to be. It was mm-hmm. kind of dark and it's like windswept alley, and so they'd ask for that to be remodeled and changed, and so. All of that to say, is the design justified by itself? Mm -hmm. 
or does it need to be just by natural environment? What makes people happy? Right. And it breaks the grid. Does it, you know, it's, it's an, it looks imperfect in the plan. Yeah. When you <sighs> let those forces Blasphemy. in. Blasphemy. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I'm kind of coming, that's why I say, I want to come at it from human factors. Mm-hmm. Let it break the grid. Let's see what happens. Right. Yeah. That's cool. So, okay. So, so breaking the grid, breaking the system, you uh, didn't go into architecture for undergrad. What was, you graduated high school. What was the thought there? What, it, what, what do you want to be? What, where'd you go? Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I was a little bit young. I had a summer birthday. So I graduated from high school when I was 17. Mm-hmm. I went to a small liberal arts college on an academic scholarship. And it was so I was so happy there. It was so clear. It was not the right thing. Now I'm a parent and I have I have sympathy for how hard it must have been for my parents watching me try to figure it out. I was there for one year. That was a complete no-go. I just didn't enroll again. I just didn't go back my sophomore year. I took a gap year after my freshman year, which is not probably not the optimal time your parents tell their children to take a gap year. That is when I did mine. And in retrospect, oh, it was great. It was the perfect time. I spent months in the fall in the in the San Juans. I worked at this ranch as they were closing and moving the horses out to pasture. I love that part of Colorado. And it was so quiet and the seasons changing it was incredible. And I signed myself up to study abroad in Costa Rica. Mm. And I went out there and studied Spanish and I was there for a few months. And then I sort of leveraged the last of what was left of my contacts with the college where I started to go study abroad in Oxford. Because it, it was like a classics mm. type liberal arts college. And Thankfully, I was able to go study abroad and study art and literature. I was at St. Clair's and St. Edmund Hall mm. and stay on in Oxford for two terms. And I even applied to be a degree candidate and I was accepted because I thought I might just stay there. Hmm. <laughs> that's cool. That's that's quite a gap year. That's quite a the uh, experience wrapped into a new a new uh, figuring out what's next. Um so you did stay there in Oxford for your full degree, or did you come back? Then I, I didn't. I said, you know, I, there isn't really a bachelor's at Oxford. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. And for a girl who doesn't know what she wants to do necessarily when she grows up, that's not. It's pretty limiting. Like I would have just studied. I, I had to select what I was going to study, and you only study that until the end and I was still so curious I had so much to figure out and I applied I applied to colleges in America coast to coast and got myself there by myself I'm one of five kids so other people from big families know (laughs) your parents are not going to orchestrate everything for you (laughs) I took Greyhound buses and planes and I was in California and Massachusetts and visited colleges Applied to a lot, was accepted a few that I think would have would have been great opportunities, and I came back here to see you, <laughs> Boulder. After all that, <laughs> and it was the best thing ever. 
because it's diverse. There are people from all over doing all kinds of different things, all ages. It's was just what I needed to be exposed to at that moment in time. Nice. And you, but, but yeah, you had to go everywhere else to realize that it's actually pretty good here. Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> That's better, you know, most of us just land in the state school that we grew up in. And yeah, yeah I don't really know what's going on else, elsewhere, but that's funny. Uh, so then what did you do? You graduated with what? Uh, English degree? English, what was it? Believe it or not, English literature. Yeah. And that was a little bit default based on what, what transferred from Oxford. <laughs> they did not look as fondly on my other, uh, on the art work that I had done there was less consistent with how what a syllabus looks like for art in this country. And so I had the most credit in literature and writing type classes. So I was like, well if I'm gonna graduate in any time time frame that is acceptable, <laughs> I I shall be an English major. And you're like I learned English in Oxford. So yeah, I can <laughs> that's one thing check. I did. Yeah. <laughs> So I have an English literature undergraduate degree, and but you know what's interesting? The creative process is really similar. Yeah, and the further along you get as an owner of an architecture firm, the more English you need, rather than drawing skills. I think actually writing having writing skills has served me right over and over. What's the percentage of your time that you spend writing proposals versus uh yeah drafting things? It's it's, it gets pretty even. It uh, does. And it's remarkable how when you design something or come up with an idea, and then you've got to you know, compose the introduction and the conclusion and justify it in the body of an essay or a, a novel. You're essentially justifying your premise, and it's the same thing with a building. Yeah. So... Yeah. It wasn't totally disconnected, but I still, you know, didn't know where I was going to go. So did you know? Did you know what was next when you graduated, or did they have to kind of kick you out the door? No, no. Um, my dad made some crack about how, like, well, we'll see you holding a sign or something like <laughs> that, which at the moment really hurt my feelings. A, a very well written sign, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Making some joke about maybe my career plans hadn't gelled. But I did have a job. I got a job um, as a staff writer at the Crescent View News mm. on the Western Slope. Mm. Crescent View. Cool. And I also was, I mean, I just went out there. The job was not totally settled. I went out to interview. I um, I had a, like a kayak on the roof of my car. And I stopped on my way at this craft guiding place and asked for a job. And they said yes. <laughs> so I just... Yeah, I found my way to Crescent View and I had multiple jobs and I worked at the newspaper. It was so interesting mm. and so fun. I learned wow. a lot. You're like really embedding into a local community, huh? I mean, the newspaper, you know everything, right? Like that's your job is to kind of sniff stuff out. And uh, I don't know. I've never worked in a newspaper, but it seems like it. It was awesome. Coming from Denver to, you know, Denver is is cool but it's big and there's like the anonymity of the big city mm. to a small town where everybody knows who you are you can't make a mistake without everybody knowing about it and especially in the newspaper <laughs> builds skills builds character 
and work, I had to work through it. Yeah. So why aren't you still writing newspapers right now? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I always, I always love visual art, painting, sculpture. I hadn't really found my niche with visual art, but I knew that was where I had talent. I just couldn't figure out how to, just like the writing thing I was describing, I couldn't figure out how to do visual art in a way that you also built the utilitarian justification for it. Mm. And I, I wanted that. I wanted to find how can I create something that's beautiful and artistic and creative and put it out in the world in a way that's backed by utility. And and that was a sort of concept or a, or a realization you came about when you were in Crested Butte or just kind of grew into that and then you said okay I need to do architecture that's where all paths lead all paths do not lead architecture <laughs> I wish I could say that. I wish I had my grandfather's ambition from three years old he knew he was going to be an architect and I I've had to grow into it I'm still growing into it yeah. I just want to be riding my bike but it's no longer <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, I I had such a wonderful time in Crested Butte such an incredible place. Friendships and professional experiences too. But I, I felt like I had hit the wall with my professional development that was available to me there. I also just didn't think that journalism was was it for me. You really have to have a passion for that career and rightfully so. I have so much respect and admiration for journalists. I could have stayed there forever and Bike and skied and improved those skills a lot and probably been very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just came to a point where I, about three years in, I thought I needed more professional, more professional opportunities and gave it a lot of thought. And it, it was like I just had a, I, I want to do art and I want to do it in a way that is meaningful and functional for the community. And adds value in a really tangible way. And so having been exposed to architecture, knowing about it, I think was helpful for me sort of getting over the hump when I applied to UC Denver. Did you take buses all over the country or this time you're like, okay, see you, that's fine. Did you look at other schools? I didn't. I think <laughs> I don't know why. Actually, in state tuition. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's a great program that allows people like me to start right in on a master's program mm-hmm. without doing a lot of leveling courses, which I think attracted other people who are adults and ready to show the kind of engagement that you have at a graduate level. Even though you know, it takes a really long time, but that was a big program for me, and I knew I knew two other people, sort of, um, who were there, and I, you know, I had spent some time, kind of untethered from my Denver community, so it sounded good to mm-hmm. be back there. What was you know, like you said, you have you had this sort of experience with architecture, but what were some of the things that surprised you the most about architecture school? Right, such a different experience. 
oh, that first year was a washing machine. <laughs> I showed up. <laughs> uh, that was not. That is not a high point. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear some anecdotes about that. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. I hit the ground running. Like classes started on like a Tuesday morning, and I blew in on Monday night. I was totally not ready. I did not have my videograph pen set, much less like load it or know how to use them, and I still don't. And other people, you know, architect types, they're really organized and ready. I'm organized, but a lot was going on. I leaving Crested Butte, it's like the biggest breakup of my life. I was heartbroken. It is, it felt like home. It was incredible. And um, there's a part of me that's still there now, but especially then I'm so conflicted about that change because it's so awesome. And, And I keep I'm using like superlatives that are not very meaningful, but if you've ever been to Crested you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. And being a part of the community, to your point, like my finger on the pulse of what was going on, I felt such a part of things and leaving that was so much harder than I bargained for. On top of that, so on top of being ill-prepared, um, heartbroken, <laughs> I was going through a, a bad phase. I injured my arm in a mountain biking accident huh. that turned into something I was really not ready for. And so I was actually not, not doing that well. Um, my arm was in a cast and I had just had surgery and I was trying to do stuff and, you know, they want you to hand drop that first year. And so all those things added up to um, kind of, I'm a rocky first few weeks. <laughs> firing all cylinders, huh? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah, if you made it through that, yeah, you're 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 on the right track, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I I'll be honest with you, I did not um, realize until I started reflecting on my story as one comprehensive thing that I did the same thing in my master's that I did in my undergrad, which is I did a gap year after my first year. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. And it it was not anything to do with the school. I admired my professors. I made friends. I somehow managed to build little models. <laughs> one-handed. <laughs> with, with, with my, just my left hand and I'm right-handed. There's a fundamental conflict for me, Adam, that I, I still have not gotten past, and that's that I love the natural world. I love mm-hmm. wild places, and architecture is a construction development mm-hmm. industry that feels at odds with that. So I was, you know, I was worried that it was not the right, yeah, not the right fit. And I was also worried I wasn't going to live long enough to find out. <laughs> I, I, I had this, um, this thing that started in my arm um, that developed into an infection that anorex weren't working. Oh, and so no. it was like, I think the doctors knew I was going to be okay. But that younger version of myself was like, I might not even live to find out if architecture is, if it's all going to work out. I thought you meant like architects don't start their best work until they're 
65 and I don't know if I'll, but like you literally meant it. You're like, I don't know if I'll make it through here. Oh, huh. And I was like, if I have a limited amount of time left, I don't want to be on the computer all day making houses that were commercial buildings, developments that bulldoze the natural environment. Those are some of the thoughts that I was Right, having. yeah. And it happened that at that time, my cousin had, who is truly a sailor and grew up in Bainbridge Island, and who I spent a lot of time with growing up, had bought a sailboat and he was sailing around the world and he asked me to join him. <laughs> You're like, well, it's, it's about my time to go back to Costa Rica and to, uh, uh, yeah, England. So, yeah, uh, let's do it. So that makes so much right. sense. Okay, yeah. But at the time, it's, this probably doesn't sound realistic, but at that time, I did not realize I was doing the exact same thing I had done. It felt like for such different reasons. Uh, yeah. It, it seemed like adult, really adult, quizzical reason. Like I should be asking these questions. These are the type of questions I want to ask, and not just muddle through. Right. I mean, it's so relatively easy, right, to just keep going with the flow. But to say, no, I don't know if this is right. Like, let's say around the world. <laughs> I mean, that's not the, the the normal leap, I guess. But uh, so yeah, you did you did that. So you went from where to where? I certainly didn't make it around the world, so not much. But it started at Cape Canaveral, Florida. And we sailed down slowly, slowly, but we went to um, the Ragged Islands, the part of the Bahamas, a really wild remote. Nobody was there. We circumnavigated Puerto Rico. We went to um, Hispaniola. And from there, my cousin had to, he had to sail back. He, um, he had to get back to Alaska for the salmon season. And I we made all kinds of friends. It was so fun. It's huh. so fun. There's such a community of people who sail. Wow. And unfortunately for my husband and I, or excuse me, my husband, it's a different thing. Um, he doesn't mind that I can't sail, but for my cousin, um, I don't really have like the right vibe for the open ocean. <laughs> I'm such a Colorado person. <laughs> I got by, we got by, sailing shorthanded, it was fine. Um, I was not totally cut out for that, but I, I continued to sail after he went back for a while with with other huh. cruisers that we met were fun and and after a while from Puerto Rico I sent to Chile and we sailed to the Portuguese Azores. Wow. Really brave people yeah. out in the Atlantic Ocean. Incredible. People who can solve problems in the middle of the night with the ocean coming into the boat. I have so much admiration for them. I was scared all the time. <laughs> and they were fine. Yeah. Yeah, just that idea of that empty horizon is terrifying to me in all in all directions. I mean, I came from Kansas, it's pretty much the same. Like you can stay out in a field and it's about the same. But there's no sharks under me. But uh or yeah. Huh. Yeah, I'm from Colorado. I thought it was tough. I'm mountain bike, I canoe. That stuff out in the ocean is seems a lot harder because you can't make it stop. Yeah, you, you can't, can't get off. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And also, you sail all day and all night. <laughs> I don't know why that was not really clear to me when I started that adventure. That you, it doesn't. The ocean does not stop. When you're out there and you're on a passage and it's multiple days, you continue to sail all day and all night. Whether 
did that did that prepare you for architecture school again? Like working, you know, sleeping just four hours at a time and <laughs> sort of preparing your body. Uh, yeah, probably so wore me down in advance. So but you did, lots of yeah. time. So did I mean after that year? I mean, did you? It was obvious to go back to architecture school, or was it still? You know, did you go back because okay, I I kind of fall back into this, or was it okay? I'm prepped. My mind's clear. Let's do this. More the latter, I think. I realized I I didn't just want to be a backpacker traveling around the world. I didn't. I, I wanted to have a real a career that made a meaningful impact. And I thought, well, private land is going to get developed by somebody. Mm-hmm. And maybe my contribution is to develop it with as much care and intent for the land as I humanly possibly can. Mm. And that's how I can endeavor to reconcile that conflict between the naturalist and the architect in me. Yeah. See, so you came back to see you with that with that mindset. Did you feel like you had to be pushing back against the the sort of school and professors to like better hone what you thought architecture would be, or did you find mentors that that brought that out better for you? I thought that UCD provided a lot of support for people who wanted to practice architecture in a sustainable way. I think like all students, it's so sobering to come out of school mm-hmm. and feel like the professional practice is less so. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. A second smack in the face. <laughs> right. <laughs> A different kind. Yeah. So who 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 were some of the influential professors you had at at Denver? The human factors professor at that time, Jim Sobey. Hmm. I don't know if he teaches there anymore. Profoundly talented. Desire, who worked at Pinterest for a number of years. And he was, um, a lot of people didn't, didn't get him, but I really got him. I understand what he was trying to say. And he directed me to all the work that is so important to me now. Christopher Alexander, Pat Cambridge. Mm. It's on my desk all the time. And I, then I was a TA for the class, so I kind of got to take it again. Probably could have taken it again and again. And we still stay in touch. So I didn't realize at the time how impactful the human factor class was. It's still really important to me. Mm. Yeah. And so then talk about that. <laughs> that other smack in the face well, about graduation. What what do you do? You know, like ball of ideas, energy, get out into the real world. What happens? Well, that's why I say I think this conflict I still hasn't gone away. Like I love the natural world and architecture. Just it's it's really hard to truly say that it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then we have what we call sustainable architecture, but it's. Still, it's always additive, right? I mean, it's always, yeah. 
And so I, I think that's still, it's almost the, the weightiness of that responsibility that I think has motivated me because I still haven't found this sustainable architecture necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I do, I think it's a point that it led me to to connect with other people. You know, there, there are people who have um, just kind of given up in a firm mm-hmm. and they're like, forget it, it's a sham. And there are those of us who are still really trying mm-hmm. to conform our work. So I think that was, that was bonding it for me in the different stations and places where I went. So, but the St. Combs was the first place you went and worked? And then you were there for a little bit, or how long? I was there for a couple of years, and right around the time I graduated, I also moved back up here to Boulder, or I moved to Boulder a little before I graduated, and I was going back and forth to Denver, and yeah, it was kind of a weird time. You know, is 2010, firms still weren't totally staffing up yet, again, and I wanted to figure out what to do next and I and I did some sort of smaller collaborations a really meaningful one for me was with um, an architect who is still practicing in Denver but I think she kind of flies under the radar her name is um, Margie Sukuni Chinese American and we did a a set of conceptual drawings and and concept building and um, budget exercises for Cleo Parker Robinson, mm. the dance studio. Yeah. Loved it. Frank Shorter Church in Five Points right. is the stalwart building, and it's kind of really falling apart. But I, I had opportunity to just have weekly meetings with Cleo Parker Robinson. Mm. And, you know, when we were talking about being a part of the heartbeat of the community, Cleo Parker Robinson is incredible. If you have the opportunity to see her shows, wow. I get, my hair stands on end because of how much she's influenced me and uh, taught me about race in Denver that I didn't even know. I had no idea. Even though I grew up in Denver. So that was a good, a kind of a, a tweener little project that was pro bono. So I couldn't do that forever. <laughs> we were trying to put together the documentation them to raise funds to add on and remodel that building, which I, I hope that that they've been able to do so because she's so incredible and I admire her so much. And then from, I started working as around. Yeah, they're really interesting to me. I need to get their mom, get Dale, right? Yeah. Uh, get him on the show. Um, but yeah, it seems like really good Good work. How how large was the firm when you started there? So they were just starting to staff up again, and um, Nick Fiore and I, Flower mm. Architecture, mm-hmm. you've heard of him, incredible designer and great body of work. Yeah, another person who I need to reach out to soon. Been on my list for a long time. Uh huh. Yeah, you should. He's so interesting, and I. See, I see his work, and I have to fight these feelings. <laughs> is that admiration? Is that jealousy? Is it in between? Yeah, that's yeah. just architecture. <laughs> this is architects. Yeah, 
He's so good and um, and and so friendly and and actually was um, was wonderful to work with. He, they hired us about the same time, and we were we were like the fourth and fifth hires. Oh, really? Yeah. And fourth and fifth people. There was you know Dale and Tim and Kim and wow. uh, the two of us. And how long were you there? About four years. Okay. So did you feel like? Did you feel like that honed your your skills pretty well? I mean, like, seeing Combs was probably a bit of a boot camp in terms of like, here's how to practically do architecture, right? Like, here's here's AutoCAD, here's whatever, here's how firms work. You had a little bit of pro bono kind of restore your spirit a little bit, maybe, and then and then you then you're at surround. Uh, is that a because it's majority single family homes, yeah, they're a mix, like oh, the okay. you know uh, multifamily, like we can see outside this window. They do a few of those, and I think custom, yeah, custom single family had been their bread and butter for the most part. Yeah, but they did take on big, big commercial projects, and yeah, talk about being in conversation with international style. Surrounds aesthetic is is really rich in layers of textures and a range of styles, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. To just, you know, throw off for a minute expectations of what gets published and well or uh. you know, what what people might think architecture should look like and you want it to look like. Right. Yeah, so um yeah, did, did you did you feel like you you kind of took on their methodology there in a little ways, or it was more of a kind of sampling and, and continuing on your way with this this vision of architecture that you had? I wonder. I think I learned the most about about process, and the n- nice thing about residential architecture is, and and a smaller firm, of course, you know, would be a part of the whole process mm-hmm. and a lot of time with clients and as well as building schedules and building the model. Dale allows a lot of creative autonomy in the office, mm-hmm. which is, which I admire him for that. Um, Cause I have found it's, you know, it's really hard to let go of SD. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so four years, and then what happened? I had two little kids. That happened. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, when my my daughter was a baby, I um, the first first my second second yeah mm-hmm. a lot. I had a really big year. I used to call it a hard year, but I don't call it hard anymore because I think that's different. It was big. I was pregnant with my daughter, and I took all my licensing exams. <sighs> That's intense. I do not recommend that. <laughs> You're like, well, I'm going to be sitting and, uh, well, just, but you had another child at that yes, point. So you're definitely not sitting. Yeah. I oh, promised to myself, oh. I wasn't, I was going to finish them before oh. my second was born. And everybody, my mom was like, just wait, it's not a rush. I don't know. You know what it's like. That's, that's there's the third slap in the face. Yeah, yeah. It. There's always a reason it's not ugly. 
is really not a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Especially once you fail a few and then, yeah. Oh, with that on my mind, I just, I'm like, I have to finish these. So I was pregnant with her. I designed and just off hours and squeezing it in. We designed and built our own house. Oh, so I just because you didn't quite have in. enough going on. And, yeah. and we had to, you know, as a consequence, move two times, moved out, moved to an apartment, done with the house because we had to the house where we had been living in North Boulder. And my son was a little boy, and it was just a lot. Wow. But when my daughter was born, I think I just needed to regroup. Yeah. Yeah. What did, what did that look like or feel like? Did it, was it, another sort of gap year to you, you know, like it's going to be this, or was it a close the book on this chapter and there's something else, you know, like I'm going to start the firm after this or just, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, when, when I first started that year, I really didn't go approach with the attitude that I'm starting my own firm. That was, that was really not on my mind. I actually didn't resigned to Dale for over a year because <laughs> I kept thinking I I might come back yeah. and they were my friends and I really loved that work and uh, with Dale's permission I just organically did a couple small projects like a little something for a friend that I met at you know mommy and me yoga mm. <laughs> and and then I did another one, just little things, one thing that kind of grew into another. And I started to get ahead of steam and yeah, it really organically and additively came together that I think, first of all, I think there's a way to practice architecture, which is more humane and accommodating of parents. Mm. That was part of it. I wanted to, it was hard to let go of the flexibility that I started to experience. And also, I just did really good work when no one was watching. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I did that project for myself. It was just sort of on the side. I took more risks. I found efficiencies. And I have gone on to do four more smaller projects that are where I'm the owner and I learned so much from those and I didn't want to give up that time and space to do that and then I started being able to apply that to to clients what I had learned but it just took me sort of being completely untethered from a firm or from superiors or from anyone watching me to make mistakes and take risks to make the quantum leap that I really needed in my head. Huh. That's really interesting. Again, like shedding that idea or trying to get away from that idea of what other people think about what I'm doing or about how I'm drawing on this piece of trace paper right now or how whatever. Yeah. So you you did you did those projects it was somewhere past a year that you decided to finally resign officially. <laughs> yeah. And at the at that point, was it was it uh, was you had commissions coming in, or um, I guess when did when did flight when was flight born, and like that name, that idea, that LLC. It, 
Yes. That, I think was probably, yeah, I think like you said, about a year, a year after I had been cruising on my own, maybe even longer, maybe a year and a half. Uh, so many sleepless nights mm-hmm. <laughs> my kids that sometimes that gets fuzzy. Yeah. How long it's been. And I wanted to stick with it. I like, I'm independent. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a good fit for me to just be in an environment where I make the rules for a while. It wasn't that I wanted to work less, I work a ton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it just felt good to be on my own terms and I wanted to keep going with that. And I had so much to learn, so much to learn. But I just, I leaned on structural engineers a lot. I would ask questions, really probably embarrassing questions. Right, yeah. And just, and just ask them. And there was nobody in the office to hear me ask them. Yeah. And I worked. You're like, I'm paying you right now to, to, to hear my silly questions and not laugh. But but funny thing is, the I matter- thought I would yeah. stop doing that. No. And so many years later, I'm still asking what feel like should be remedial questions. And I think probably it's just going to keep happening. Right. But you, it's like so easy to think that. And then the structural engineer says, oh, I don't know that either. That's a good question. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's not an easy question. I... Custom architecture and architecture just is by nature. It's custom. And every day I'm drawing detail. I haven't done it exactly like this before. And each time I think, okay, this house is, this is more like something I've done before. This should be easy. This won't be hard. We'll just change it in this one way, in this one way, and then... 30,000 changes later. This will only take four hours. And then (laughs) 24 hours later, yeah. It's less words. So what what was, what's flight? How'd that name come about? I wonder that too. Why do you call it flight? That makes no sense. People are like, flight? (laughs) Writing is hard. It is hard, yeah. A couple things. I love momentum and flow, and I think flow is crucial to good design. Mm. My spirit animal is a hawk. Mm. My son loves airplanes. <laughs> we spend a lot of time at tiny airports, like the one in Broomfield mm. and the little municipal airport in Boulder, watching tiny airplanes take off and land a lot. It just feels like the design process mm. for me, where you kind of burn a lot of fuel at liftoff. <laughs> Then you kind of get some air under your wings and it starts to go under its own momentum. And I also talk with clients, well, God, I talk with myself and everybody a lot about trying to get a bird's eye view. It just seems so important when you're doing a design to zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, and see the big picture Mm. a lot and not get so lost in the minutiae or a project of of architectural skill does not get done in right. my opinion so that's where flight came from and then somehow at the end you always have to land that plane right like you lost two engines and like somehow you got to get that co and uh yeah exactly. <laughs> there you go so true yeah. uh that's funny um so yeah starting firm always super hard you kind of start with your own projects you get some 
some projects from kids friends which i'm finding is like one of the best venues avenues right to get projects um and how so how long ago was that 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 sort of like beginning of flight probably five six years ago okay cool um and so have you figured it out you figured out the, the 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 environmental yeah, the path that you want. So what's what? I guess what's the closest you've gotten to that idealized version of architecture that you had going back in after that first year of, of grad school? What project? You know, I had a couple. One of them is the the mommy and me clients I told you about. I'm now doing my second project with them, mm. and they were living abroad in Japan and came back and decided, let's go ahead and redo this house. And a lot of conversations, there's a new house, is, do we redo the old house? And they introduced me to the Japanese term kintsugi, which is when a practitioner will take a, a broken piece of pottery mm-hmm. and infuse it with gold and patch up all the cracks with gold. Yeah. And we took that concept toward their toward remodeling and decided that it's the house is pretty imperfect. But it's more environmentally sustainable to not scrap the whole thing. And with a lot of energy and, and, and their enthusiasm and, and their willingness to take some risks, it's really, really beautiful and it's coming together. So that was one of those that was really based in in philosophies that are important to me. Another one was was my um kind of I don't I don't like to use the word employee or something, it's like a co-stakeholder, my my <laughs> Right-hand man, Francis, it was his, his first day. And after, you know, quite a journey, it takes a long time to land like a full-scale custom. That relationship takes a long time, I think. Maybe it doesn't go to A full-scale custom house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I had already been on the journey for a while. But it was really the first day of putting Ben to Trace. And um, we walked around the site early in the morning and then rolled out the piece of Trace paper. And I, I had the opportunity, it's like, we're starting fresh. And I wrote on the trace paper, let the land speak. Mm. And with everything you touch, how can we ask that question and let that be the benchmark for all the decision making? And I mean, it's been a lot, it's grown and developed and, but I still see that. I still feel like the land speaks and moves through that building and it's spring now. Mm. I like that. I like that idea. I just envision like you, you're like writing, writing this bold statement out for your new employee, let the land speak. And you're like, okay. And then you just stare at it. And you're like, uh, I don't, I don't hear anything. Wait, what's uh like, give me, uh, it's a, it's a good story. And then, uh, but um yeah, listening. Uh, yeah we're gonna be here for a while uh yeah but yeah, yeah so I, I love that uh but so then practically like what if you want to share some of that design process like what what does that what does that look like when you get into that i asked like ccy this and they're like we're not going to tell you our secrets like we're not going to tell you how we do this but like you know, what, what's your sort of practical process of, of diving in on a single family home like that in a, in an environment that's there, right? Mm-hmm. 
that's interesting. And what you just said about CCY made me think that's that's something I think I do a little bit differently. Is that it's really collaborative mm. for me to do a to do a design process, and I don't feel like I own that process or I have a certain way, and I don't have a stranglehold on the outcome. Because other people, maybe the people who lived on that property, they they bring so much to bear. And when they push me out of like my comfort zone of what I think it should be, I really grow as a designer. So I'm happy for that kind of input. So one time what that looked like, letting the land speak, was I had some clients who were in advertising, um, both the mom and the dad. And they we just started conversations, but there wasn't a survey on the property yet. They're gonna scrape and rebuild. And I was like, okay, well, we can survey, you know, we'll start putting paper. They're like, actually, we're gonna be in town next week because we're taking the kids, being <laughs> spring break. And they showed up and they wanted to talk about architecture. I guess I could have just talked to them, but it didn't seem that productive without something. And so I cut up these little tiny models. Mm making some leaps just from my experience of you know what I think makes a good kitchen living dining volume, what I think makes a good bedroom volume. I knew they wanted this sort of spread out ranchy farmhouse. Didn't know all the details, but I generally knew their their program and it's kind of square footage and kind of budget. And so I, I made these these volumes out of paper. I was never lost in a lot of shops so paper is definitely better for me. And I couldn't believe it. It was just electric. I printed mm. off from like Google Earth and as quickly as I could put together what was generally extensive of the site and setbacks. And they're so creative. It was intimidating at first, but mm. once we worked together, that collaborative process was great. Out came the scissors, out came the tape. And that was one of the first times I trusted myself to kind of improvise with the client and really allow them to have a lot of agency in their own home. Mm. Mm. And from there, I've done that more. So like that day when I said I, I wrote Let the Land Speak, <laughs> and then it was like crickets. <laughs> oh, it's, that's the land, it's the crickets, yeah. It's, it's uh, that's the concept. <laughs> it was similar. <laughs> we made some models, and we knew it had to be net zero, so it had to have a lot of southern exposure, both for the solar panels, but also for passive. And so we just started by taking, you know, a long volume, turning the roof up and shed towards the south. And that also worked because the site was getting kind of long. Mm. Um, and and then we put another one next to it. I mean, there were tons and tons and tons and tons of iterations, right. but we used these models and we worked together. Yeah. And took a lot of pictures as we went. So that's kind of what my process looks like. And I use a I use a colored site plan that's a lot bigger than the site to take in more, but it helps me a lot to see the object in the field, mm. not just a white piece of paper. And maybe it's optimistically green, but it's sort of a green site. The site also has a lake. And so we have that on there and the street. And so having hardscape, softscape defined is what I work from uh, using little models. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, it's like something we we do in school, right? Work models, working with professors. And like, I, I really, that's my kind of 
ideal way to work is through models. I barely ever do it anymore, unfortunately, you know, but I feel like that's an impressive process where I've done sort of shred styles like that before, but the idea of doing it with a single family home and like really kind of getting into the design of it, 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 it would like bring out a lot of insecurities in me, I think of, of sort of like, well, no, I'm, I'm the creative genius. And like, when you move that box next to that box, it was better than my box. Like that, that doesn't feel good. Like I did, I, I did seven years of architecture school and I have all this experience, but you know, and, and you know, I can see myself sort of fighting that in, in a way. And it, and it has to be, you know, maybe humbling or, or, or maybe it's, it's that other thing of when you were able to kind of shed, shed yourself from surround and everything else and, and doing your own journey, you know, it's liberating in a sense, or, or you still, or you still deal with that kind of ego a little bit when you're doing that shred stuff. Oh, I still deal with it, but dude, shedding <laughs> ego is so liberating Yeah, and the design just gets better. Right. Yeah. I finally have, had enough experiences with that that I trust that the design will just get better. Mm. And also that the owners have buy-in when they feel like they were part of it. Mm-hmm. I also learned that from Jane, who who I admire so much, um, Jane Snyder of Mosaic, mm. where I actually worked after Surround. I forgot to mention that. Mm. Anyway, um, briefly did uh, as a consultant, but mentorship from Jane has stayed with me a long time. She talks about that. Let let the client architect with you a little bit and and they'll have buy-in for the rest of the project. Okay, so have you ever had this experience where you've done all this work, you've done all these meetings, all these constraints, you come up with a great concept, the owners more or less signed off, and then maybe you're in DB or something and you get a call or your phone blows up like I'm in Portugal and it's so beautiful. And I uh, took a picture of this window at this resort. And can we do it like this? Yeah. And oh my God, look at this mosaic floor. Like, can you relate to oh, that yeah. feeling? I, yeah. you feel in that moment. And I've learned to sit with that feeling and not say anything to them, reel them back to the original design, write the ship. I'll sit with that feeling because I feel a lot of ego popping up. Right. Like, I, you know, it's kind of my show. I'm the architect here. <laughs> we put this together. So I, I kind of try to wait till that feeling subsides. And then a couple days later, this just happened kind of recently to me. And I noticed all the thoughts and the feelings yeah. that came up. And instead of texting her back right away, like, oh, we have a great concept. Let's chat about it when you get back. You know, whatever I was thinking to try to be like, let's turn this off. Instead, I just sat with it a little bit because I've been here before. And a couple of days later, I was ready to be like, awesome. Mm. I love Portugal. Mm. Bring it. And showed me all the pictures. And there was this restaurant. And it was so much more fun because uh. I don't even know. I don't think Portugal ended up in the final design, really. But it was stronger than what I had uh, because it came from love. It came from what she was really excited about. And I got excited too. And I think her being heard meant a lot. Mm. And and 
the client was able to really invest in the design. And we just stayed in this, like, all possibilities are good possibilities space together. And honest to goodness, the design is better. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting the idea of, of starting off early with them and getting buy off and buy in of that initial concept, right? Where then later on, if they say, yeah, I want, I want this Portuguese window, you're saying, okay, but remember the concept we came here and, you know, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe it fits or, or not, but, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, exactly. They see how you, they see how the, the design was generated and they can acknowledge the justification in real time. If you're standing there going like, well, we got the zero here and your neighbors are kind of close here. So we're opening it up here. And if I want them, you know, you do that when you present, but if they see that in real time as you're moving the models, mm -hmm. I think it's pretty impactful. Yeah. That. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. It's just, it's so easy for architecture to be so opaque for most people and you don't fully understand it until you open up a 15 year old CAD model of the underlying structure of the stadium. Right. Uh, but the more, yeah, especially with single family, right. Or, or any project of, of inviting people into that process and, uh, yeah. Uh, testing out your, the, the strength of your own concept, right. In the light of day, maybe. Yeah. It's interesting and it's fun. It, it energizes the, the process to co-create. And I want to see more. I want to see where that leads. I started, because I started developing this idea around love and rooting design in love, I started listening when people say love. And I, I know it's just semantics. I know yeah. maybe the English language is limited and we need more words for love or something because we love you know, pizza and your spouse. But even so, I think that still works. I listen in. I love coffee. I love my dog. I when I hear them saying these things as aside, it's not necessarily when they're talking about the program. But to me, that's the program. I love chocolate. I love riding bikes. I love wine. That's the program. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I was trying to think of who was it. Um, I think Joseph Bonablano of Studio Trope like said like he doesn't let any of the clients uh name rooms by bedroom or by living room or whatever you have to explain it in a different way and like talking about sort of what you do in it or what you want for it or, or what you know but uh that idea of of using love as a signifier for what's important in physical space is interesting uh interesting what's so cool about architecture one of the things is that it's such a visceral experience mm -hmm. You feel it when you experience it with the body. So it makes sense that the process should try to harken back to our physical senses a lot to inform how it takes shape and grows from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Margie Sukumi, who I mentioned that um, I collaborated with, talked about materials and spaces having life force energy and i think that means chi in chinese medicine but 
she really cared about natural materials and how you could tell when a material had life force energy. And I've always sort of wondered about that and sort of looked at that. And she talked about spaces being either for action or for repose. They're just mm. they're just one or the other. Mm. And I think of that a lot too, especially as you know, I, I sometimes call into question the kitchen being right in the living room. Especially for parents. There's space one is a space for action and one is a space for repose. And how we might differentiate those a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so so what what do you see what do you see for the future of, of flight and your practice and where you want to take it? I think I'm going forward with this this experiment that if if I trust my gut and my intuition, I sort of already have with this journey I have, but I've had a lot of self-doubt about it. Right, yeah. So now I would like to continue to trust that intuition with less self-doubt and more confidence that these these spaces made for people made for how people feel and move in the world based on what they love based upon what they love will really work for them it will also really work will serve the environment in which they're a part of I hope yeah well, you know, I've, I've already enjoyed your work and, and like seeing what the, the body of work you're building and, and this, this idea of, of love within architecture and uh, the sort of tactileness of space is really interesting. And I uh, look forward to see how you keep, keep going on moving forward. So thanks for, thanks for talking with me. Thank you, Adam. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. It's, it's just such a, such a hard profession, you know, and it, of, like you're saying, like, you know, it's, it's so easy to, I mean, you go in with so, so much optimism and you have these ideas. And then you hit real life and it's so hard to keep that going and then, and then figure out what to do with it. Right. And, uh, and it's like starting a firm is the answer because you can control things and you can do it. And then you get out and you're like, well, who's the, where, where's all the clients coming? Like, I'm really good. And I have passion. I have, I have beliefs like, uh, don't you want it? I'm here. I have a website that, that gets visited three times a month and uh yeah hire me um i know and i don't know but i wish for i wish there's more collaboration between us us small shops more often i don't know if we're we're scared of um stepping on creative toes or something like that i don't know what it is but I think we need to collaborate with each other. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like every single person I talk to says that, right. Totally. I think, I think it's, we don't have time. And I think it's that projects don't necessarily align. Like, like t- 
timing and things like that. You know, I, I have like four firms right now that, that I'm saying, Hey, yeah, let's do a project together. But like, Hey, I need a project that's big enough for more than two, three people and, and be, you know, like, are they busy? Am I busy? And, and then I'm still curious, like what happens when you get in there and you, you have these two cooks that are used to their own kitchens, you know, I don't know. I, I think like that's part of this podcast is like, is, is bringing people together. And like, and now we're doing more like live happy hours and, and shows and things to like get us actually together. And, but I am really interested to see what comes out of it, especially with the trend that I'm always worried about of, of mega firms just keep swallowing up bigger and bigger firms. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think this idea of a sort of like, umbrella firm or something a collaborative firm of small people is the way that we you know fight back against that but yeah how it works i don't know i like that idea i like that idea there's some some people kind of tried that up in boulder i don't know i don't know how that went because i wasn't a part of that collaboration but maybe unlike my peers i you know i'm afraid it's afraid to fail for <laughs> me to go on and on but i didn't start thinking i was gonna do this and be on my own all the time. And I have many restless nights where do you think I could go back to Jane and beg for help? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it, uh, there are a lot of inefficiencies in being on your own, and and I don't know. Like I said, I I think it works. And we can set aside our egos for a minute and trust that with somebody else's idea that's better than yours, mm-hmm. it's actually better. Yeah. The, the design can grow. But yeah. It's hard. It's hard to kind of get to that moment. Hi, I'm Eli. This show is made by my mom and dad and these people. Heidi Mendoza. Aaron Best. Kyle Bruner. Emily Child. Trevor Notzko. Zach Huff. Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.